Second pick, the Philadelphia Eagles select Donovan McNabb, quarterback, Syracuse University. Don't move. Welcome to a new edition of the Boo Birds podcast alongside, well, virtually alongside John Sager. I'm Joe Greenwich. We're back for another weekly episode of the pod. Another episode after an Eagles win, John. This one a few days earlier. We're recording here on Sunday night after one of the more, uh, I don't want to call it interesting, but uh, unique Eagles games we've seen lately. You said another episode. I believe this is actually the other episode after an Eagles win. <laughs> Just two out of, I think we're up to like 11 now. But um, the game was on Thursday night, so kind of frees up your Sunday. Did you do anything with your day today with your Eagles free Sunday? Actually, no. And uh, to quote Office Space, I did nothing and it was everything I thought it could be. Yeah, an interesting day. We we had discussed uh, recording earlier today and... Uh, Personally, it wasn't feeling well. And and now, you know, over the last six, seven, eight months, when you're not feeling well, your mind immediately goes to the worst possible outcome. I'm like, oh, my God, I've caught the plague. But, you know, feeling better later on. And we talked about recording and you had some technical difficulties. And then right as we were getting those ironed out, I find out that the power is going to go out for a couple hours. There was a a tree branch nearby had fallen onto a main power line. So they had to shut it off. And like, oh, it's going to be off for like three hours. It's like, oh, OK, not like I, I need electricity. And it really kind of shows you how we've evolved as a society to the point where I really had nothing I could do. Like there's some battery powered lights. You could put one of those on and read. It's still kind of uncomfortable because, you know, it's six o'clock at night. It's dark and it's going to get even darker a week from now. So that was an interesting uh, Sunday. But uh, it looks like the fall weather is here to stay. Which, personally, for me, I'm all for it. I liked the crisp, cool weather on Saturday part of things versus the uh, Sunday rainy. Yeah, well, you know, I feel like at the same time, a rainy day really hits hits home with, with, with how a lot of people are feeling nowadays anyway. But hopefully, hopefully we're able to get outside and do a little bit of that that weekend fall stuff. Those are always the best days. I always like them better than spring because... The weather's getting cooler in spring. It's it's getting warmer. So the, the the day that sticks out is the day where it gets up to 80 and you're uncomfortable. Now it's like, ooh, today it's 45 and, and there's a nice little crisp chill in the air. I sound like the most depressing human being in the world right now. I know. But a- a- autumn weather is the best weather. And I don't even think it's close. The flip side, as you know, uh, it's sort of the, the the end of it is when you go outside for the morning and you have to wonder where the ice scraper is on your car all of a sudden. That is probably the the number one drawback. You look outside, oh, it didn't snow. There was no precipitation. You go outside, you're like, oh, no, I can't see in my car. <laughs> well, this is not a, a weather podcast, so we'll, we'll get off of that. Uh, despite not being a news podcast, though, we are going to go into the news. John, what's been going on in the world of local sports lately? Well, it's been a busy week. First up, longtime voice of hockey Doc Emmerich retired last week. He was one of the premier play-by-play men in sports. The former Flyers broadcaster worked with the team from 1983 through 1993 and was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame in 2008. 
The Sixers added Jameer Nelson to their front office. The Philadelphia native and Big Five legend was a first-round pick in 2004. Nelson will serve as a scout and assistant GM with the Delaware Bluecoats. The Eagles continued to own the fourth quarter and came back to beat the Giants on Thursday night football. A Brandon Graham forced fumble sealed the deal. Don't know where, but I think that's happened before. The Eagles are not the only Philly football team vying for first place. The Union pasted Toronto 5-0 on Saturday and are now in a tie for first in the Eastern Conference. Due to COVID-19, the Army-Navy game is moved from Philadelphia to West Point. The game will return to Philadelphia in 2022. The most important tradition in college football has not been at one of the service academy sites since 1943. Joe, you are a little older than I am. What was it like to watch Jim Pettit intercept Doug Kennett back in the day? <laughs> That's savage, bro. Speaking of savage, Brett Phillips is the hero of Game 3 of the 2020 World Series. Joe, who the hell is Brett Phillips? Uh, I'm pretty sure he's a guy we were cursing about a month ago uh, when, when he was coming out of nowhere to derail the Phillies' chances of making the playoffs. I blocked that series out of my uh, out of my mind, but I'll have to refer back to my notes. He he killed the Phillies and then had two entire at-bats until that crazy play, which we're going to talk about later, I promise you. And finally, a bit of a moral conundrum. Antonio Brown signed with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Joe, I don't know if you saw this, but ESPN's Adam Schefter picked up the wide receiver in his fantasy league and then tweeted out news that he was considering signing with the Seahawks. Is this insider trading... Or is this what you get for being in a league with the NFL breaking news guy? You know, when, when you when you mentioned that, because I hadn't heard that, that's news to me. When you mentioned that, I was going to say that's a violation. But also, you kind of should expect that when you get into a league with Adam Schefter. So I, I think I think his league commissioner is going to have to put some sort of corollary into their rules next year. It's the kind of thing to me that that is a precedent setter. It's a thing where everybody gets upset because it's it's never been thought of before. And and now you have to put a rule into place to discuss it. And I think that's the longest fantasy football conversation we've had all year. We'd have, but it's an important conversation. And I'd have to say, if I was in his shoes, I would do the exact same thing. <laughs> I, I, I can't really blame him. And that's the news. Hey, Joe, what are you drinking? Well, tonight, just a glass of iced tea. I uh, I didn't really get a chance to chill any other sort of adult beverage and then when the power went out <laughs> it wasn't happening then so we're just going with a glass of iced tea that should be able to get us through the through the pod tonight hey john what are you drinking well not unlike our sponsor it looked good on paper and did nothing decaffeinated coffee and that was what are you drinking brought to you by the nfc east i've been thinking for six hours of a joke and there's nothing funnier than the nfc east Speaking of the NFC East, John, that will jump into our Eagles talk. Eagles-Giants Thursday night, Cowboys football team this afternoon. The Eagles-Giants game was much closer than I think at least one of us thought it should be. Um, I will admit that while I didn't think the Eagles were going to run away with the game, I did think the Giants were bad enough that a banged up Eagles team should waltz through them to some extent, not in an impressive fashion. And then today, Washington just dominated Dallas, a 25 to three victory. That's a score you don't see all that often. 
That's a Doug Peterson score for you. Washington got a safety, but you can just imagine the Eagles beating someone 25 to something because of a two-point conversion. Actually, I think that happened in San Francisco. This is the rare year where multiples of two are somehow factored into football predictions. I can't imagine what the the betting market is like with the three and a half, four and a half point marks there. When, when, when you look at the important numbers in that regard being like three and six and seven and 10, and now it's like, does Doug Peterson get baked into the line in some way? But uh, we we can we can put that talk off for some other time if we uh, if we make friends with someone from Vegas to uh, bring onto the pod. But the Eagles game it was a few days ago, so I, I didn't necessarily take notes, and I didn't necessarily see anything that stuck out to me as super concern worthy or super positive. Obviously, the thing that everyone has talked about and made videos of and gifts of and laughed about is Daniel Jones tripping over the 25-yard line on his way into the end zone. Now, it's funny, and it really didn't matter because the Giants went on to score in the next couple of plays anyway, but it's 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 nice that that happened in, in a Philadelphia game and it wasn't the Philadelphia team uh, being ridiculed for it. You know what I mean? Well, did you know that you were actually watching a historic play? Oh, really? Yes, according to Ray Didinger, that is the longest run by quarterback in NFL history to not go for a touchdown. Huh. <laughs> well, I mean, it's usually pretty difficult to go much longer anyway. I didn't report this in the news, but I also read a rumor that the Eagles were considering signing the 25-yard line to the practice squad. Yeah, make sure you credit the the, the Boo Birds podcast Twitter feed. They had it first on Twitter. Um, I say they as if it's not we, and I say we as if it's not me. Um, but watching that play live, it was just one of those things where it was humiliating for the Eagles to leave that play that wide open. But then again, who thinks Daniel Jones is doing a keeper? And to me, it looked like a keeper all the way, like that he was intending to run, not in the moment. But when you see the replay, that was the play. And there is nobody within a mile of Daniel Jones. And I think nobody was more surprised by that than Daniel Jones. You see him look and see the defender. And then as he starts to drift towards the sideline, I think he just got tangled up in his own feet. Right. And usually when the quarterback is in that much open field, it's, you know, the defense loves it because you can get a free shot on the quarterback. Yeah. Then he's just a runner. (laughs) And instead he falls down and then he falls down with such momentum. He gains some more yards, tries to get back up and then gets pasted into the ground. (laughs) I just, just look at that. It was like, really? And that, that's where I kind of got the sense of the Eagles might lose this game. And then later on, they had the ball deep in giants territory, went for it, came up short in the moment. I thought it was just a terrible call. Just put the points on the board. Like I understood the logic behind it, but put the points on the board. You never know what's going to happen. This is a team that struggles on offense that you're playing. You should be able to hold them to a field goal. I also understand you want to leave them a really long field coming back. What did you think about that? Did you have any thoughts in the moment and looking back on it now? Well, Normally, I would say you kick the field goals, the automatic in that situation, except Jake Elliott isn't doing so well. That's true. He had uh, missed one earlier in the game. So I think that that complicates the problem. Uh, I don't know how much that's in Doug Peterson's head at this point or if it's just him being aggressive. I think the safe decision at that point is to 
kick the field goal. Um, but that kind of falls into a lot of the two-point conversion things that we've talked about ad nauseum uh, already this year. Uh, it's just, is it, you know, might be a little over-aggressive. I think if the ball was going to almost any other person on the team, it would have made a little bit more sense. And instead, the pass went to, what was his name again, John? Hakeem Butler. Again, who? <laughs> I think that's kind of emblematic of, of everything we're talking about is that play happened. And I saw the name Butler on the back of the jersey. And I was like, did the Eagles trade for Jimmy Butler? Like, who? And, 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 and that's obviously been an issue the last couple of years for them. Uh, it's about the same uh, feeling that I had last night when Brett Phillips came up to the plate and I thought, wait, who? <laughs> well, not to, to argue with myself. Well, but, hey, if it wasn't for me, you'd be doing this on your podcast already. <laughs> Can you imagine 45 minutes of me arguing with myself? <laughs> That's like basically like a commute to work for me. But um, I, I I tend to to be one of those people that says, yeah, I get the the idea of, of trying to put a team on the field to go 98 yards to score against you. And, and the Eagles defense is better than the Giants offense. But something about playing a bad team just makes me think, you know, you're already losing. Don't do that there. Just put the points on the board. Of all the things, though, that we've we've ripped Doug for, I think that's probably well down the list. I've got one much higher up the list that we'll talk about in a second. But let's just skip everything that happened in the first three quarters that that we haven't already talked about. Just go right to the fourth quarter. The Eagles are down 21 to 10. I don't know about you, but I never felt like they were out of it simply because of who they were playing. I thought they would make a, a run at it and make it interesting. I didn't know if they were going to win at that point. Uh, that would have been a long shot for any prediction. But you knew that they were going to make things interesting. Carson tends to show up in the in the fourth quarter and at least keep the game close. He's such a, a grinder and he's always playing hard. Sometimes it makes it harder on himself than he needs to. Uh, but, you know, I, I didn't see the game ending quite like that. And I think you have to chalk it up to the Giants to do things, actually. The Eagles uh, staying with it and staying in the game and not hanging their heads. It's number one. And two, the Giants are a bad team. Right. Personally, I don't know about you. I don't think this Eagles team is is very good. I don't think that they are anywhere close to one of the most talented teams that that they've had in recent years. A lot of that has to do with injury, of course, but they do not quit. You know, there are a lot of times where they could have quit. They were getting pasted by the Rams. They were getting pasted by the Steelers. But you never got that sense that they had bailed on the game. Right. And playing against a bad team, of course, on the one hand, should get you down when you're getting beat. But even then, in the back of your mind, it's like, we're still better than this team. We can still score twice without giving anything up. Right. And that has actually separated themselves over the last couple of years from their NFC East cohorts, especially with the Dallas Cowboys, who <laughs> right. are the more talented team, especially on offense, not the defense, not so much this year. Uh, but they've not only quit on their team last year, they might have already quit on their coach this year, their coach who was new to the team this year. Somehow they managed to downgrade from Jason Garrett. And that's that is that is truly special. And you know, Jerry Jones, he's probably eventually going to be in some sort of football hall of fame, that's a hall of fame type performance to go from the mediocrity of Jason Garrett and somehow downgrade your coaching staff. Well, Joe, uh, much to your chagrin, um, 
Jerry Jones is actually already in the Football Hall of Fame. Well, there you go. Wait, wait, why? Uh, something about Super Bowls. No, you can't put an owner in the Hall of Fame because the team wins the Super Bowl. Is Robert Kraft in the Hall of Fame? Now I'm going to make you Google that. But but like, I, I don't understand how you can have someone. He's not. That angers me. That, <laughs> that makes me actually angry. And I'm not usually one to care about Hall of Fames outside of baseball. And even there, I don't care too much. That angers me. Well, Robert Kraft is actually not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame yet, but it looks like he's been under consideration over the last year or two. So, so it can't really be about the Super Bowls then. It's got to be about something else. And he's the guy who bought one of the iconic teams in league history and drove their iconic coach out of town. Man, what a joke. Now I'm angry. <laughs> well, well, if we only had a couple billion dollars, we might be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Oh, man. Anyway. So the fourth quarter, and, and well, while I'm on, on the topic of being mad, let's go to the thing from the game that made me angry. Um, it's 21-16. The Giants are punting. The Eagles are going to get the ball back with a chance to win the game. And now you would think the two-point conversion might be what made me angry. No, that's where they should go for two. There's not a lot of time left. You have to try to make it a three-point game. But it was still a Doug Peterson decision. Why on earth is Deshaun Jackson out there to receive that punt? Like there is absolutely no excuse for putting a guy who, you know, oh, you know, he's got a history of punt returns against the Giants and he may be your most dynamic, exciting playmaker. Possibly the guy hasn't been healthy for two years. You put him out there in a situation where he's even more liable to get hurt than running a pass route. And now I would venture a guess his second stint as an Eagle is over. He will probably not wear an Eagles uniform again is, is my kind of bold prediction for week seven of the 2020 season because he was out there for a punt return. What are the chances you're getting a return on that play anyway? Generally pretty slim. Instead, you put out one of your big ticket guys. He's supposed to be your game breaking playmaker. And now you've gotten him hurt possibly for the rest of the season. That is. That is one of the worst coaching decisions of the season, bar none. You can forget the punt against the Bengals. You can forget going for two in a situation where you maybe shouldn't. That was coaching malfeasance. Right, and I think they've limited Deshaun's snaps when he's actually played. This year he's been on a, a very low pitch count with snaps, and you would think, okay, well, if you're going to control his you know, activity on the field, Putting him in the most vulnerable position that a football player can be in, certainly not a good idea. It just, it seemed inexcusable to me. And I, I just, I, I obviously, I don't think any potential reward that would have come from it would have been worth the risk. Um, and clearly it wasn't. But despite that, Eagles get down in position to have a chance to win the game. They have first and goal, and then Jason Kelsey gets called for he gets called for a face mask, but uh, it was a little more than that. I'd say he ripped the guy's helmet off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair enough. So they get pushed back to first and goal from like somewhere around the twenty. It was three days ago. I don't remember exactly where they were, but I remember saying in that moment, you know, it actually might be better to get further away from the goal line because 
it's always easier for a defense to defend in tight because there's less area to defend. Right. And the Eagles don't have that guy to where they don't have Miles Sanders. They don't have that back who can kind of bruise his way into the end zone. Right. And they try the fade route earlier in the game, the worst play call in the book, according to a lot of people. And a lot of people tend to be right more often than not. They tried that. That didn't work. They don't really have a a reliable enough guy. Maybe Travis Fulgham has become that guy. So when you're in tight like that, it's difficult, especially when your top two starting tight ends are out. So getting farther away, I thought, you know, that might actually help them. And then on the first play, Boston Scott makes the touchdown catch to win the game. Looking at it, it looked like a much more difficult catch than I think it would have been for someone even of your height or my height. Boston Scott being a littler guy, it looked like he had to go way out there for it. A regular size wide receiver, that's, you know, breadbasket height, but makes the catch, gets in, and the Eagles take the lead. Of course, the two-point conversion, a mess. And then, as you mentioned, Brandon Graham with the strip sack late in the game to clinch it. What was your feeling? You turn off the TV, you get that first initial internal reaction to the game. What was that for you? Well, it was just that I had competitive football to watch for another week. <laughs> I, I don't have any grand illusions about the Eagles season this year. They might win the division on six wins, but they'll st- they're still going to win the division. Um, I know a lot of people think about, oh, tanking, getting a better pick, etc. cetera. Um, I'll take beating the Cowboys, the Washington football team, and the New York Giants for the playoffs any year. For me, it was the thought that, you know, there's a pretty good chance they're going to be in first place by the end of the of, of week seven because and they are and they are because Washington, I don't think is very good, but Dallas, Dallas sucks. And that's something we say here all the time. But the reality is Dallas sucks on a level that I don't remember them sucking in, in a long, long time. Well, as their name suggests, Washington does have a football team, <laughs> the do. Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> eh? uh, Washington's defensive front may be the best unit in the division, uh, not to, to slander the Eagles because they have a really good line as well. But you saw what what football team did to Carson Wentz and the Eagles offensive line. And then you saw what they did to Andy Dalton today. He was He was constantly running for his life right up until he got concussed. And then the Cowboys put in, um, let me get this right. His name is Ben DiNucci. Who? Yeah, that, that their backup quarterback is Ben DiNucci. For who, for what is not just a quote from the past. It's actually who, what we're watching on the field right now. If you told me this is Ben DiNucci, try to guess what his job is just from his name. NFL quarterback would not have come across my lips until maybe June of 2023. Like there's, <laughs> I, there has never been a less quarterbacky name than Ben DiNucci. Actually, you know what? Let's ask our our listeners to to tweet to us to to respond on Facebook. What is the 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 least quarterback name? What is the name of a quarterback who inspires the least amount of confidence? Uh, Coy Detmer might be one of them, but um, that 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 would be an interesting uh thing to to discuss because. It came up with their backup quarterback being Ben DiNucci. And I'm like, how did the Dallas Cowboys not have a backup that anyone has heard of? Granted, Andy Dalton was their backup, but they've had two weeks now to do something about that. Well, 
we're not the only ones because I just typed in Ben DiNucci into Google and the first article is who exactly is Dallas Cowboys backup quarterback Ben DiNucci. The second article, who is Ben DiNucci? Cowboys next man up at quarterback. So we are not alone. <laughs> I, John, I, I thought that you were going to end that 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 initial uh, paragraph with, and I found out his name was Bill DiNucci or Bob DiNucci because I thought there was a non-zero chance that I had misheard his name on the broadcast. So I'm glad that I at least got it right. But uh, well, it looks like he played college football at James Madison. So unless there's any JMU fans that want to come at us on Twitter for not knowing his name, you know, we're not alone. I'm sorry. I think even James Madison alums and fans would have to excuse us for for not knowing who their quarterback was. But even so, feel free to come at us on Twitter. But regardless, uh, either Ben DiNucci or Andy Dalton will be coming to Philadelphia next week to lead the Cowboys offense against the first place Eagles, uh, who now control their own destiny. Half game lead on Dallas and Washington. One game going into the bye. So on a macro scale, I think, and we've said this before, that despite everything, I think the Eagles have to be the favorite to win this division at this point with 10 weeks left in the season. Do you agree? Totally. And I believe that Washington looks like the biggest threat to the Eagles. One, because they already beat them. And two, I mean, you saw what they did to Dallas today. That was probably the best performance inside the division that anyone's had, right? I agree. And I think they're trending up. I can't say the same about the Giants because they lost their star player earlier in the season. Right. And the Cowboys look almost as injury riddled as the Eagles, considering also they don't have a defense. Right. I think obviously it always boils down to quarterback play. Carson Wentz is now, without question, the best quarterback in the division. Again, no slander to Ben DiNucci. But I thought Andy Dalton was probably the second best once Dak Prescott got hurt. Hasn't played great. He's had offensive line issues like the Eagles have. Concussion. Can never tell how long he's going to be out. It's the NFL. He'll probably be back next week. But Kyle Allen and Alex Smith and even Dwayne Haskins are at least at the very least competent quarterbacks in Washington. Ron Rivera is a good coach. They have that great defensive line. I think that this may be more indicative of, of the future that they may be a team on the rise. And just once they they you know, shore everything up and just get a little better on offense, get a little better on defense behind that line, get an actual nickname. They may be the team that we see going toe to toe, hopefully with the Eagles for NFC East superiority in the next couple of years. But that's in the future. And as we said, week eight versus the Cowboys, the Eagles should be favored in that game. I expect they would be favored coming out of the bye against the Giants as well. Two very big games coming up. Granted, they're only going to play one game in the span of about three and a half weeks, thanks to the Thursday night game, and then a Sunday, and then a bye. So hopefully there's no rust involved there, but they should be expected to win their next two games. They should win their next two games. Four, four, and one. That might be be in command in the NFC East by that point. Right, and I I actually think they need a bye week very badly. Uh, just to catch up uh, on their injuries, get guys a little bit of a break and sing as the roster is very much a hodgepodge of football players uh, just to maybe iron things out. Maybe maybe they want to do something like shift play calling duties since that hasn't playing calling hasn't been going too well lately. Uh, so maybe if they can 
that's the kind of thing that you do in a bye week. You, it's harder to do that on, you know, going from a Sunday to a Thursday. Well, I think that basically wraps up week seven, uh, especially as it pertains to the Eagles. I don't think there's anything we could wait, wait, possibly want to talk wait. about. I think we need to talk about quick picks for this week. Uh, no, I, th- I think we'll do them. Uh, just make sure you get them posted on the website by Friday. Like always, I don't know why we need to to discuss them any further. It's not this week's quick breaks. It's last ah, week's quick I see. Breaks. I see. A little bit of uh, conflict in, in Boo Bird's world over this one. Last week. I don't see the conflict. I do not <laughs> see the conflict. And that right there is the conflict in and of itself. Last week, John tried to claim victory and, and was thoroughly smited by an internet poll uh, by, I think, what was it, uh, one vote? Um, this week, John predicted a close game. I predicted an exact play that would happen in the game and the exact Eagles score. But ultimately, John believes that that what he did was closer to the actual feel of the of the game. Um, I, I told him that I would be able to lawyer my way into whatever outcome I wanted. But the reality is, I think over the last two weeks, combining those two into one whole unit, I think we come out about even. So if I got the win in week six, it, it's it's tough to argue with giving John the win in week seven. I could retroactively argue for two draws, but I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to make you face the indignity of a winless season. So congratulations on your first win. As cheap and hollow as my win was last week, I feel like this one is, but I'm going to fall on my sword and and allow you to take this one. Well, I'll take it. Really, that's all you have to say after all that haranguing and and, and campaigning. You're just gonna, you're not gonna gloat. You're not gonna talk trash. You're not gonna give me anything to fuel me, John. Come on. Well, I have a history doing this with the Eagles Giants games. Uh, to be honest with you, when uh, Deshaun Jackson returned uh, his punt for uh, like a, a walk off touchdown a few years ago, Miracle of the Meadowlands two, or was that Miracle of the Meadowlands three? three? That was <laughs> Brian three. Westbrook. That was three. <laughs> Um, I was watching that game with a couple of Giants fans. My condolences. He returned it. And I just left. <laughs> so I, I didn't say anything. I just left. So with that in mind, I'm just going to take the Eagles, went over the Giants, and leave. All right. Well, John's going to take a walk. I think it's a good time to take a break. We'll be back in just a minute on the Boo Birds podcast. We're going to talk about the union and a little bit about just what actually happened at the end of last night's World Series Game 4. Stick around. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Boo Birds podcast. We just talked about one first place football team. Now we're going to talk about another, the Philadelphia Union. The Union winning five to nothing on Saturday night uh, against Toronto, their their main contender in uh, the Eastern Conference. That's just an absolute demolition in soccer scores. That's it's fantastic. Love to see them on a roll. Um, it's a shame that they can't take advantage of it this year because you'd have to think that uh, you know a hot team might have uh, some more people come out to the stadium to to catch everything unfortunately they can't but 
as we've seen before, uh, you know, when a team that's trying to build a base wins, they might they might catch on a few fans. You know, hopefully that does happen to the union. Of course, I'm speaking to someone who's been a fan for their entire duration <laughs> before they even played their first game. Yeah, it, it's th- there's there is a sense of pride in watching them do what they've done the last couple of years. Last night's match, for a little bit of context, three weeks ago, the union went up to Toronto, which for 2020 is located in Hartford because American teams can't go over the border. And they, they took an early lead against Toronto. Toronto FC came back, won the match 2-1, and it kind of left a bad taste in your mouth as a fan. You can imagine how the players felt about it. So this date has kind of been circled on the schedule for three weeks now. Toronto was coming to Chester. Toronto three points ahead in the standings, one win ahead of the Union. MLS uses points, three points for a win, one for a draw, uh, as their first decider of standings. And then the first tiebreaker, instead of goal difference, is wins. Well, if the Union were to win last night, they would be level on points and level on wins and would have a better goal difference than Toronto. Winning 5-0 was never anything that I don't think anyone possibly considered as something that could happen. Now, Toronto, a little shorthanded. They were in a less than ideal situation, training and playing in Hartford. So they took a couple of days and went home to Toronto to see their families. If ever there was a setup for a team to have a poor outing, it was certainly last night for Toronto. But that doesn't account for how well the union played, dominated the game early in the first half. Just you could tell this was this was not going to be Toronto's night. At one point during the first half, the union held 70% of possession. And in soccer, possession is is a huge thing. It just lets you dominate the pace and flow of the game and they finally broke through and scored a goal, followed up with another. They say 2-0 is the most dangerous lead in soccer. The next goal, if you get it, you've put it away, essentially. If you give it up, you've now buoyed the other team, and they're right back into it. The Union went out there, and instead of turtling up and playing defense, got the third goal, and then the fourth, and then the fifth. And it was just, it was, it reminded me of Game 4 of the 2008 World Series when Joe Blanton is hitting home runs. You're like, oh my God, like, we're going to be one win away from the Phillies winning the World Series here. As those goals start pouring in, you're like, oh my God, the Union are going to be in first place with three matches to go. And in, in MLS, the, the team with the best regular season points total wins what's called the Supporters' Shield. There's been some flack over whether that was going to be given out. The foundation that technically gives out the trophy said they weren't going to do it. And then there was a big outcry, not just from other fans, but from teams and players themselves. So now they're giving it out again. Whoever has the most points, which is likely going to be Toronto or Philadelphia, will get a trophy. And it would be the first piece of silverware in club history. And with the situation they're in, with a huge goal difference advantage, if they win their last three matches, they will win a trophy. They will win a championship of sorts. The first in club history in their 11th season, And I cannot tell you how big that is to watch the club grow the way they have from an afterthought in the league to still an afterthought in the league to a team that can hold a lead into the 85th minute and then let you down to a team that became one of the the chic picks to win that MLS is back tournament this summer and now is on the cusp of, of having a chance. I mean, they control their own destiny. You go out and get three wins. It won't be easy. 
they, they don't have cupcakes left on the schedule, but it's at the point now where you say they're one of the best teams in the league. And so there is nobody in this league. They can't beat. There's, there's no match that makes you think, Oh, that's where it ends next Sunday in Columbus is going to be a test. Columbus is right now third in the East, the best team outside of the union in Toronto. That will be, if they slip up somewhere, I think that's where it would be, but they control their destiny. It's, it's incredible to see that they've clinched the top four spot. They're going to have a home playoff game. If home playoff games are even a thing, there's been some talk in MLS about doing a postseason bubble, kind of like what Major League Baseball did. If that's the case, I understand why they've, they've been hit by cancellations. Colorado's team just went a month without playing. Right. And you don't want to get to this part of the postseason right. and then have to shut down. Right. In Major League Baseball, if they had had a, an outbreak not even an outbreak, but just one or two games had to be postponed, the whole thing would have fallen apart. I don't think that would necessarily be the case in MLS, but why, why tempt fate? So as much as I would love the union to be able to play at home, they've been able to sell something like 1,500 tickets maybe for the last couple of games. I haven't attended. I have no plans to attend the rest of the season, but if they ended up with the MLS Cup final at home, if they qualified and hosted it, I would have a real quandary on my hands, but for them to have that opportunity would be great. And of course they would get it in a year where they wouldn't actually be able to carry it out. But just to see what they're doing, there's a sense of pride there that, that I feel because all of our other sports teams existed before I was born. This is a team that I literally watched be birthed and grow in one of my favorite sports and While you were old enough to appreciate it exactly, as well. It's not like exactly. it happened when you're a kid and you think, oh, this winning happens all the time. And then a la the 1993 Phillies, <laughs> it does not happen for a while. My dad and I went to the very first union home match, an exciting 3-2 win over DC United down at Lincoln Financial Field. And, and I went to a couple games over those first few years. I, I This will be the first year, if I don't make it down, that I didn't go to at least one home match. I started getting season tickets with some friends in 2014 to, to see the club, even from that point, grow into what is one of the top clubs in the league. Their academy is one of the top academies in the league. We talked last week about Brendan Aronson. Mark McKenzie is a guy, another local guy from Delaware, who is one of the best center backs in the league. Forget one of the best young center backs in the league. He's one of the best in the league. He will, I imagine, in the offseason, make his way to Europe as well. And, and it's just a testament to everyone involved with the organization that they have grown from the ground up, a legit MLS top notch club. Will they stay there? That's the question. Right. And as hard as it is to see players that you grew graduate to the next level, uh, at the same point, that means you're doing something right. right. It's like when, uh, you know, teams will start hiring assistant coaches that's when you know you're doing something right. Um, and I think that's when you look at like, you know the Phillies front office or with uh, other teams that there haven't really been grabbing at their assistance. That's because they are doing something right. <laughs> the union in this instance are doing something right. And, you know, you are happy to see those players, you know, develop here and then get on um, to, the, to the next level. And hopefully they have success there as well. Right. And and if if you're not familiar with with soccer and, and how it works in that regard, it may seem like a surprise, like Brendan Aronson just got voted the best player under 22 in the MLS. Mark McKenzie was number three. 
why would you get rid of those guys in soccer outside of the top European leagues, like the English premier league, La Liga in Spain, the Bundesliga in Germany. Uh, there's Serie A in Italy, league in France. Those are the top five leagues outside of that. Most of the other leagues, when they have an opportunity to sell someone up, so to speak, they jump at the chance. You see these hundred million dollar transfer fees of guys going from one European club to another. If you come to terms with the fact that MLS is not one of the top leagues in the world and that the priority for a lot of these young American guys that want to play for the national team on the men's side, on the women's side, we have probably one of the strongest leagues. But here on the men's side, MLS is not one of the top leagues in the world. So when you come to terms with that and you realize that's how it works, you see why selling Brendan Aronson for up to $9 million to Red Bull Salzburg in Austria is such a huge thing. It is the kind of deal that helps further sustain what's already been built moving forward. And it's the kind of deal that when you put together an academy for an MLS team and you start to grow these players is the goal. Yes, you want to win MLS Cup, but you can do that with guys who aren't quite as talented as Brendan Aronson. And you can bring in veterans for a little bit more money than you had to pay him. But that that $9 million, the, the, the fee of $6 million plus the potential add-ons, is it's like a trophy for the development system at the union. So while, like you said, it is a shame to see those guys potentially move on, it is validation for what you're doing. And it should lead you to believe that there's no reason that there aren't more guys in the pipeline. And there are. Now, whether they're going to become that good remains to be seen. Brendan Aronson's a special player. Like I have no qualms with saying that. He just turned 20 years old a few days ago. He's very young. He is a special player. And I think that when all is said and done, he will be the best player who's ever worn a union jersey at some point in his career. And I don't know that it'll even be close. But he's also the kind of guy that right away you say, He's not going to be here very long. Andre Blake, their goalkeeper, was a similar story. He was the number one draft pick out of UConn. And the talk for years was that this is his last year. He's going to be sold. He had some injury problems. He had some ineffectiveness. He's still here. Thank goodness, because he's one of the best keepers in MLS. But Aronson and soon McKenzie are the guys that are really going to put the union on the map internationally instead of just an MLS. It's it's wonderful to see. I'm really excited to see this last week and a half, two weeks of the regular season and what happens in the playoffs. This team is legit and anything short of reaching that conference final has to be considered a letdown. Uh, they were they were a game away last year, but they went down to Atlanta. They were never really expected to compete in that game. It was closer in the score line than it really had any business being. This year is different. This year they have to you know, they're going to have, like I said, possibly a home playoff game, likely two if they win the first one. They've got to advance. And it seems weird to say that. And, you know, if you're a union fan or, or not a union fan listening to this, it probably feels weird to hear that. But it's absolutely true. And it's it, it could not come at a better time. You know, we're sitting here talking about the Eagles being in first place at 2-4-1. and one, And the Phillies letting us down in the shortened season. We don't know where the Sixers are going. 
The Flyers ended up playing a little bit above their heads. So maybe we really don't know how good they are, but with them being the best team probably in the city when their season ended and still not being great to have the union come in and be great. It's exactly like you said, the sort of momentum that could build up the fan base and the interest in the future. They do a great job filling that building, even when the team isn't great because the youth soccer community is very strong and very active. And, and you see kids in uniforms at the matches all the time. The union is going to be a difficult ticket to get in 2021, even if they don't win the title. And it's going to be a lot of fun down there, assuming we're ever allowed to congregate in large groups ever again. Next summer, I think, is going to be a fun one in Chester. Well, you mentioned Joe Blanton earlier. Uh, really, and I, really, that's what you took out of everything I just said was the Joe Blanton reference? Well, I, I have a strong uh, affinity for the Joe Blanton home run, I'm just actually. teasing you, John. I will turn you into a soccer fan before this podcast comes to its conclusion. I will turn you well, into a soccer guy. We do have a memorable soccer match story, which we will talk about <laughs> at some point. That in might the be future. on Blue Birds After Dark sometime. I believe so. Um, so I remember the Joe Blanton home run. Uh, when it happened, the at bat before I had been in a bar in Maniunk, speaking uh, with my friends and just sort of doing the exaggerated predictions. Uh, I remember someone saying that uh, Carlos Ruiz was, you know, the player to build around uh, for an example. And I remember saying Joe Blanton is a big guy and some, you know, he makes okay contact. I could see him hitting a home run someday. It happened. That was unlikely. That Blanton home run was not as crazy as what we saw from Brett Phillips last night. I, you know, people were talking about as, as a great finish, Others were like, man, the Dodgers defense on that was of Little League caliber. I think you were in the former camp. I was in the, the latter camp. Whenever you can have a moment in a baseball game, especially like an ending to a big one, like a World Series game, be something that people are talking about the next day, it's good for the sport. Um, assuming that it's not you know, an umpiring decision. Just for those of you that don't know, real quick, First and second, two outs. Brett Phillips is at the plate. Tampa's down a run in the bottom of the ninth inning. The Dodgers are a strike away from going up 3-1 and grabbing a stranglehold on the series. Brett Phillips, pinch hitter, just his third at-bat of the postseason. He was 0-2. Knocks a single into right center field. Runner on second scores without question. Center fielder doesn't field the ball cleanly. It kicks off his glove. Clearly to me, he was looking at thinking he was going to throw the runner out at home. No chance. Two outs, a guy on second with decent speed. There was no chance. Instead, the ball kicks off his glove. That makes the runner at first think he's got a chance to score. Fielder goes and picks up the ball. The runner coming from first, Randy Rosarena, stumbles around the bag, falls down about halfway between third and home, tries to retreat. The ball gets cut off by the first baseman, Max Muncy, and he's got a Rosarena dead. At worst, they're going to be in a rundown and he's going to be tagged out. He throws it home and he throws a slider or something to the catcher, Will Smith, and he tries to swing around for a tag, but he doesn't have the ball, runs off to chase it. A Rosarena slides, barely gets to home plate. You see him smack the plate with his hand. Absolute bedlam at Globe Life Field. The Rays tie the series. In that moment, the, the Dodgers went from being up 3-1 with Clayton Kershaw on the mound to win the World Series. I know he's had postseason struggles. He's still a great pitcher. To now 
I don't know that they can bounce back from that. Now we're recording right as they're about to get game five underway. So by the time you listen to this, they could be up three to two or Tampa could be up three to two. I feel like that's going to be a moment that really quickly we're not going to talk about ever again or is going to be the end of the road for the Dodgers. I cannot remember something quite like that from the sheer comedy of it or its meaning potentially being colossal or or nil. Well, I think there were two things that stood out to me in the aftermath of that play. One is Randy Arozarena. Uh, he's, you know, over home plate, you know, slamming his fist on the plate. He's happy. No one's around him because they're soul. all mobbing <laughs> Brett Phillips. Well, they had to chase him first. Airplanes. Yeah, <laughs> yes. it took quite a while that he got all the way out from second base to deep left center, I think, before anybody caught up to him. Uh, that is a soccer celebration. The airplane guy scores a goal, puts the arms out, runs around. He he just starts doing that. And like, I imagine that if you ask him why he did that, he has no recollection of it. Well, it, it's funny in his interview with Ken Rosenthal after the game, uh, it, he was just on absolute cloud nine. And before that, uh, was, I think it was Kevin Kiermeyer was coming up to him because he had distanced himself from, um, you know, the the mob of teammates, the, the mob <laughs> of teammates. And he was saying, I can't breathe. Because he was just so overwhelmed by the moment. And you could just see when he was talking with Ken Rosenthal, he didn't think he was going to to get the game-winning hit in, in a World Series, uh, you know, which makes he and I equals in that regard. <laughs> well, you know? if I can well actually you on something, the uh, the official scorer, I think, made a mistake on that play, but he actually is not credited with a game-winning hit. The game-winning run scored on an error. On an error. Uh, I saw today that the the scorer called it a double error. It is a single. It's an RBI single and then an error on Chris Taylor in center field and then an error on Will Smith. That's wrong to me. I believe a Rosarena gets the third base safely every single time, whether that ball is misplayed or not. And I think the error should go to Max Muncy for throwing the ball behind the catcher. Nowhere where he can make a play. It's really difficult to give an error to a guy like a first baseman catching a throw across the diamond. It's really difficult to give an error to the receiver on that play, shy of him straight up dropping the ball. So I think the official score biffed it. I hope that gets changed. But regardless, Phillips set in motion, probably the craziest ending sequence to a a World Series game. I, I, I can't imagine there could possibly be something weirder. And we've we've watched a lot of games and you mentioned to me Something happened in 2013. It was the Will Middlebrooks interference call to end the game. Yeah. Right. And and I'm going to ask you to explain that to everyone because I only vaguely remember that play. Ultimately, I believe the Cardinals got a win out of that, but the Red Sox won the series. Correct? Uh, I believe so, which it might be like last night's game where it's more of a footnote than uh, exactly. a defining moment in the series. And that's but- kind of the point I was leading to. The reason I don't remember it that well is because ultimately it didn't matter. Right. I believe there was some, they were diving for a bag around third base. And then uh, the runner um, was sort of running over Middlebrooks and Middlebrooks started to get up. Whether it was intentional or not, it's hard to say, probably. But it was just enough to where the runner, um, you know, his path to the plate was impeded and they immediately rolled 
interference to the umpire's credit, which I believe right. uh, when they're able to do those controversial decisions right away, that validates the call a little bit more. Uh, another one, and I don't know if anyone listening to the podcast uh, saw this, I would be highly doubtful that anyone has. Once we started talking about crazy World Series plays, people started skipping towards the end. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, so 1946, uh, you know, Slaughter had like the, the Mad Dash Oh, I remember play. it well. and Right after yes, that Army-Navy yes. game, you thought I watched. Exactly. It was a couple, couple years after. So he he had a play where it's been debated ever since uh, through the newsreel footage of the era, whether Johnny Pesky froze because he was so stunned by Slaughter running around third base. Uh, I know that's an obscure poll, but that's how crazy last night's game was, where we're literally labeling it with an interference call, which I can't remember happening in a big situation like that. Usually umpires, you know, shy away from that. And... Something from 1946. Well, if there's anywhere on the internet where people are going to get that sort of connection, we want it to be this podcast. With intense union breakdown as well. <laughs> yeah, how often have you heard someone talk about MLS and then segue directly into, hey, do you remember the 1946 World Series? But uh, so right now the series 2-2, Tampa and L.A., uh, I believe it's been the first close World Series game that we've had since the start of last year's series. I think I read that somewhere. Um, hopefully it is a harbinger of how the final three games of the series go. It's a best of three down there in Arlington game five getting underway as we speak. And game six will be Tuesday night. Hopefully this pod will be up before then. And then if necessary, game seven, Wednesday night, if there is no game seven, seven 30, PHL 17 or PhiladelphiaUnion.com. John, I expect you're going to be tuned in. If there's no game seven, you better be tuned into the union. Well, I did double monitor the Eagles game with the presidential debate on Thursday. So I will probably be double monitoring the, if that happens, the <laughs> World Series with the union. I'll, t I'll tell you what, I thought that there was the potential for that football game to be so bad that it actually pushed people toward a presidential debate. Well, I transitioned to it about halfway through the debate, so that tells you how well the, the game was going. <laughs> well, I think that about does it for what we've got on the docket for this week. John, do you have anything uh, in the written variety planned for this week? No, I think uh, my conversation about the 1946 World Series uh, and the 1943 Army-Navy game was enough pontificating for the week. I don't know if I need to subject people to that uh to that more you're not going to break down the uh the eagles drafts of the 40s did they even have drafts back then i believe 1936 maybe when the draft started well don't quote me on that please anybody <laughs> well in that case you can find us on apple podcasts google podcasts amazon music spotify and more follow us on twitter like us on facebook we're at boo birds podcast and of course i just mentioned our website boobirdspodcast.com Friday, as always, the week eight quick picks. John will go first for the first time since week one. We'll see if Ooh. he can put together a little winning streak. And we'll see if the Eagles can put together a winning streak going for two in a row as they host the Cowboys. Little winning streak. I have to do some catching up. <laughs> John, I'm going to let you get to your in-depth breakdown. It's going to take you a few days to figure everything out if you want to try to get another win. So I'm going to let you go. I'll see you next time. See you next week. <laughs>